0: You're listening to the Save the Marriage podcast. Your marriage can be saved and strengthened if you have the right information. Join Dr. Lee Bauckham as he explores ways for you to improve your relationship and your life, starting right now.
1: Have you ever thought that why you fall in love may also be the very reason you struggle in a relationship? I've ever wondered how to break through that repetitive argument and struggle in order to get the love you want well today I have the honor of speaking with Harville Hendricks and Helen Hunt partners in life and they're also partners in creating the fundamental approach to marriage work they call imago therapy over 30 years ago their groundbreaking book getting the love you want helped countless couples move from unconscious partnerships to conscious partnerships Marvel, Helen, thank you for being here and sharing your time. Now let's start with a pretty important question, I think. Why do people fall in love?
2: Okay. Well, thank you, Lee, for having us on. We are honored. Um, and um, and we'll get right to that question. Why do people fall in love? And our answer to that uh, is that uh, people fall in love in order to um, finish <laughs> and they fall in love in order to finish in adulthood something that did not get finished in childhood. And that the, the, um, the brain mind uh, is set up so that any unfinished business in childhood, it's uh, in fact, put it another way. It, It appears that the brain mind is set up so that anything that should have happened in childhood in order to make us whole and healthy that does not happen, stays and remains in the brain as an agenda to be fulfilled someday. And the most powerful time <laughs> that it gets fulfilled is, is uh, falling in love, is the romantic experience. And so to then explain the, un, the the underpinnings of that very powerful experience that most people on the planet have had of falling in love, the romantic sensation. Uh, <clears throat> The, uh, the way we understand that is that uh, in childhood, the brain, the hippocampus, the, mem- the memory systems in the child's brain records its interactions, its relationship with its caretakers, whoever they were, mom, a dad, or if there was an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent present in uh, infancy and early childhood. The brain records everything, but it selects For one thing primarily, uh, am I going to survive? Am I going to live? And the brain knows that it will live if it has a good relationship with the caretaker, receives nurturing from the caretaker, receives resources all the way down to diaper changes in response to crying. But fundamentally, if the caretaker is present emotionally, And the baby, uh, when it cries, can get attention. We now understand that from a lot of people that we are fundamentally social creatures. We must be in relationship with other people. And the baby knows that its survival is actually dependent on this big person (coughs) or persons that it's around. So it has this memory. And the memory is of the things the caretaker did do that were survival-related and things the caretaker did not do that are survival related. The things the caretaker did not do is what we call unfinished business, which the brain unconsciously brings to adult intimate partnership. So in adulthood, you're doing your uh, search and find mission at whatever age that might be. And this part of your brain is a template, is a picture of the kind of person whom you need in order to get that unfinished agenda done. And that person has to be similar in significant ways to the caretakers with whom it was not done in childhood. So as you're scouring the landscape and you see across the crowded room somebody and your brain goes, ah, wow, I got to meet that person. You have this sensation uh, that we call now falling in love. That means that your unconscious perception has read this person as similar to the caretakers in childhood from whom you did not get your needs met, which makes them an attraction as a resource for those needs. So you move across the room and say, hello, uh, can we have a drink or can we go to dinner? And then you start that relationship with that person with the unconscious expectation, they will function for you differently from the way the caretakers function for you in childhood. So falling in love is an, is an unconscious way of finishing childhood with somebody similar to the persons with whom the unmet needs were not met.
1: So one of the things that's happening is that both of you are trying on the image, the imago, for the other per- to try on the other person and seeing if it's a match. So in order for the falling in love to happen both ways, you yep. manage to be a match both ways.
2: And it's amazing how our unconscious mind uh, tends to fall in <clears> love <throat> with somebody who falls in love with us. Mm. Uh,
0: yeah. And actually you're acting as if it's a conscious thing.
1: No.
0: Um, and, but it's actually unconscious because yeah. uh, you actually uh, sort of don't pick them yourselves necessarily. You just, the feelings just come. You yeah. just suddenly have these feelings and you go, where did these feelings come from? I've never felt this way before. Like, wow. And uh, a way I think about it too, is that, um, all of nature is dyadic. I mean in, 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 in our world, if you look at anything in nature, um, um there's there's like a dark and a light, a hot and a cold, um, a, a wet and a dry, and um everything everything seems to have its opposite. Mm-hmm. And it looks like we're to propagate. We need two people. So it looks like we're, we're destined to be with somebody. And uh, what a couple needs to learn is that, as Harville says, um, incompa- well, well, opposites attract, and incompatibility is the grounds for marriage. That they, they, They're drawn to someone, they fall in love, but after a while they go, oh my goodness, they're such a jerk. I didn't see that for a while like, oh gosh, maybe I made a mistake. Mm -hmm. And that's where we enter and go, well, actually it's the perfect person.
1: Yeah. Let me just ask one question about the dyadic part. So would that mean with the Imago that there are both the elements um, that could bring healing, which are also capable of hurting if they don't turn to healing, but there's also the nurturing side that you learned as a child. So what is it kind of dyadic with that imago that you're finding someone who already has some of the elements of nurturing, but also has the capacity for uh, helping those wounds along from childhood?
2: Yes. You, you always uh, find, cause all caretakers, well, it's not all, but most caretakers had a nurturing side, or you wouldn't be alive and well enough to be looking for a lover as an adulthood. So there was enough caretaking, there, it was the uh, it was a, a specific kind of caretaking, qualitative caretaking, that wasn't there. And what we find is that it has nothing much to do with were you fed, bathed, and um, and had your diapers changed. It was did the did the caretakers look at you with soft eyes? Did they smile at you? Uh, were they um, receptive? Was there a kind of resonance and an attunement emotionally? And that's what's missing is that the the uh, the attuned piece. So you have the so this person that you fall in love with will have some of the nurturing resources that the caretaker had, but they will in particular have a deficit um, of resources for the part that the caretakers did not meet. In other words, what, what seems to, is what's tragic, and and Helen and I don't understand this and don't know why nature set it up this way. That what is really interesting and I use the word tragic sometimes because it feels that way, is that when you fall in love, you fall in love with somebody from whom you expect that need to be met who is least capable of meeting that need because they're similar to the caretaker in childhood who didn't meet the need. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, Ellen and I pondered that question uh, and I mean, pondered that situation. And I'm, an, uh, I'm an, a theoretician and so I put dots together and I put a bunch of dots together and came to this conclusion is that what I thought was a bad design in nature turns out to be absolutely brilliant. Um, And it's brilliant in this way. So um, and I can use Helen and me for, for a brief example. Um, When Helen and I married, what Helen wanted, uh, which she did not get in her childhood was, uh, emotional expressiveness with regard to what I thought about her and when I said I love you, that she could feel me feeling the love instead of hearing me say uh, that I loved her. Well, I grew up on a farm in South Georgia, and on the farm you don't develop your feelings; you learn how to survive on the farm, and if you go into feelings, it interferes with you know, getting back on the horse. You fall off, you get back on the horse, you hurt yourself, you fix it and go back to work. So feelings were not useful to me. and But my left brain, so my left brain developed very much because I, I became really competent on the farm so that when I left the farm, I could do lots of things. But one thing I didn't do well was feel, feel my own feelings nor relate well to other people's feelings. So guess who Helen falls in love with somebody similar to her uh, caretakers who were also not available emotionally. So what does she want from me? She wants me to be emotional. So um, what we learned was that um, it's not that I don't have emotions. It's that they were shut down and Helen calls on me to open them up, turn them on, relate to her, be emotional, expressive. So she actually calls forth from me a part of me that I shut down in childhood to survive in my family. And without that part of me, mainly my feelings, I'm an incomplete person. So her need calls on me to develop my own completeness which gives me a fullness I didn't have and provides her with the needs she didn't get met in childhood and vice versa. So uh, that, that I have that there, I know won't go into the the side of me and Helen uh, that, um, that I needed from her, but it was a perfect incompatibility, which means the incompatibility activates the growth principle because what uh, I needed to develop to be a whole person. Uh, would not have been triggered had I not met somebody who said, "I want your feelings." <laughs> so I finally said, "Okay, I'll work on that." <laughs> you know, I'm a therapist and <laughs> all that sort of stuff. So I work on it. I finally get to the point that I feel my feelings, and now I can feel Helen's feelings. So I can be empathic because I can experience her affect and she gets me to be emotionally expressive and she gives me feedback. She loves my soft eyes in the morning and my smile and the tone of my voice and that when I say that I love you, that that she can feel me feeling that. So that's the that's the miracle of the falling in love experience is you fall in love with somebody who at the time you fall in love with them can no way in hell meet your needs, but that's what both grow toward in the relationship and the sad thing about it is our culture does not teach that it's not common knowledge even with all the books written on it including ours um, it's not common knowledge so when people reach that impasse that they're not meeting each other's needs uh and they usually get there in about seven years as as a kind of average they divorce and then go start over with somebody else with the same lack of information, the same lack of skills, so they go through a repetition process for two or three marriages without having that done. If the culture was full of this information and said, oh, when you reach that impasse, here's what you do. You stretch into each other's need system, and you do that because you're gonna get as much out of that as they're gonna get out of that. So it's a mutually enhancing thing. It's not a selfish thing or a sacrificial thing. It is a grace that somehow nature set up, but nature didn't give us a manual. And we're, we're having to figure this out on our own.
1: I, I love the the dance you described there because um, that dance brought both of you in, what both of you needed at that point and what both of you struggle with. And instead of it being, yes. what am I having to give? It's how do we find this for each other? Exactly. So I'll tell you, uh, just kind of uh, my own process of learning. I had w- just started grad school when your book came out. And one of the things that I recognized was almost all the material on helping couples was communication theory, how to yeah. help couples communicate better. Exactly. My experience was I was giving them better tools for for worse fights, you know, they were just more effective at delivering their punches. Yours was the one that went below that and said, communication is just the conduit for something else that there's something else that has to go on there. And as you describe that, it's, uh, and even the book uh, sets it up as the unconscious partnership to the the conscious partnership. So that unconscious partnership is where that's not working out. Right, I mean, it starts off like you think it's going to, and then at the seven-year or whatever market is, you're not getting there. That partnership's beginning to wear down. Is that a fair?
2: Yeah, right. It, it's a, and I, I actually, we call it. I don't take partnership there. I, maybe if so, I shouldn't have. We shouldn't have. But there's an unconscious relationship that has to be transformed into a conscious partnership, and we like that. A partnership thing because in the unconscious relationship you are each other's enemy uh, your opponents and you're in competition for the resources in the relationship and so many things are tactical and strategic um, in terms of transactions but in a conscious partnership you become each other's advocate And you engage using the dialogue process that we train all couples to use in a collaborative process about how can we mutually grow so that we are responsive to each other's needs, knowing that as we do that, we become more evolved ourselves. So that it's a beneficial partnership at the very deepest level. And you're right, communication theory does not help that process. And that was useful only for pretty healthy couples who only needed to talk a little better. And then they got better because of that. But couples who had really deep childhood needs, you're right, use communication tactics to really um, uh, hurt each other more. Mm -hmm. We have to go underneath that and see what is really going on here. And what's going on here is something fundamental, which is finishing the unfinished part of childhood. And the technology of doing that is the dialogue process, whereas partners, you you talk and listen to each other until you actually get on, you become resonant with each other, understanding each other, empathic with each other, and then you are in true partnership, and that's when the healing. And, and in fact, what we discovered is that's the healing process itself, is the engagement. It's not like there's a wound, like a, like a cut that you would get physically. It's not like a wound. The wound thing is the uh, lack of engagement with the caretaker um, at an emotional level. But when two people in a marriage or or uh, a, um, what is the other word, Um, they're living together. I'm not, not getting the word now. You're either married or you're living together. There's a word for that too now when two people, because more people are living together than are married uh, as committed partnerships. But when you get to that point where you become mutually advocates of each other and you're engaging with each other and you feel safe with each other, that is what we would now call healing.
1: Okay, so that that healing. Uh, how do people? Let's let's talk a little bit about how you know that you're um, you're still stuck in that old plate, the the unconscious relationship. How does that show itself in a relationship?
2: Well, you want to talk about that, or shall I go on?
0: How,
2: how does the being stuck in the unconscious show itself in a relationship?
0: Uh, why don't you start, and I'll pick okay. up. But I'll I'll share a similar story. I mean, I'll share a story after you maybe do some of the theory.
2: Okay. Well, the the, the way you know you're stuck, uh, for us, the our template answer is, does this fight happen three times? Has it happened three times and turned out the same way? And if, and of course, couples who've been married four or five or six years say, three times, it happens three times a week. <laughs> And so so what 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 you have with that is the repetition phenomenon that you're in a cycle and something triggers you 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 react to that instead of respond to it you react to it that triggers a reaction in your partner and your partner then uh, escalates and triggers another one in you so now you have a fight and then people have different ways of getting out of a fight some people leave the room some people um, yell. Some people call for a timeout. Uh, They figure out all kinds of ways to kind of de-escalate, but nothing changes. And so next week or tomorrow or this afternoon, you go through the same thing. So if you go through the same process, we call it the core scene. The core scene is uh, I walk into the room. You ask me where I've been. I say, "What, what, what does it matter to you? And you say, well, you didn't call. Um, and I said, well, I didn't know I was supposed to call. And so both people go on the uh, offensive and defensive, back and forth. If, it, if you repeat that three times, you are stuck in an unresolved issue from childhood.
1: That three, three times seems like a very low number for, <laughs> for most people.
2: <laughs> but, but if you've been married a year, you've probably done it a thousand times.
1: Exactly, yes. Yes.
2: But we so we make it easy so people can identify with it. And in workshops, it's really interesting to see people's faces when we describe the core scene and say, now if this has happened three times, you're still stuck in childhood, which you are, or you wouldn't be in this workshop. <laughs> not stuck in childhood. They're out fishing today yeah, yeah. or playing or having fun. You're here because you can't get out of the the I can't get off this treadmill.
1: And they're talking about the three times on the way to the workshop. <laughs>
2: Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. In fact, in fact, I remember somebody saying that that happened to us three times on the way here. Yeah. Yeah. What you're talking about. Yeah.
0: So the um the interesting thing is um when my first husband talked me into marrying him, um uh uh he got real involved in our family business and got real busy, busy, busy and I thought he was going to pay attention to me, but he got wrapped up in the busy, business and I was very lonely and sad. I didn't have anyone to talk to at night. And, uh, uh, so, and, and then he, uh, he did something illegal and was had to leave the country because mm-hmm. he got so addicted to gambling and trading the market. So there I was a single parent, two kids and, Busy, busy husband. I was lonely and sad. And I, I, I was interested in psychology. So I met Harville. And he was divorced and with two kids. And I thought, oh, oh my goodness. It's completely different from my first husband. But um, uh, I decided to propose to him. And he said yes. And I wanted to get the book written. And I wanted to make sure it was written in the right way. And to do that, I had to become sort of bossy about what the book <laughs> needed to be like because I'm good at that. Like, I know how, and also I know how Harville should dress well to promote the book. Mm-hmm. So he needed, a, like, I was a, a consultant, and 24-7, I was telling him ways he could improve himself, and I thought he'd be grateful. Mm-hmm. Well, no. <laughs> he was grateful about the book, but for some reason, he would always distance from me. And I went, oh my goodness, and I ended up, with him being busy, 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 and I was learning the sad, the very same feelings I had in my first marriage. So you either pick somebody, and then I realized growing up, I was in a house where my parents were there, but they weren't there. They were busy, busy, and I was lonely. So Harv and I talked about it, and we began to connect, and that's how we discovered the childhood wound theory.
2: Yeah, and we've said got to the one you almost <laughs> used the word, that you always pick somebody who will trigger your childhood needs, or you will, provo- or, or provoke, or you will them. provoke them into it. I was great. You, you got to deal with it one way or the other, and you have no skills to deal with it when you provoke it. So you just keep going through that what the Buddhist called the dirty brown prayer wheel. It goes round and round, but doesn't get anywhere.
1: I like that you 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 experience it and provoke it simultaneously for each other. Yes.
2: <laughs> Yes.
1: So this, um, this brings up a little uh, secret that uh, people don't think about their therapists, which is that they also have marriages. <laughs> and yeah. you, both, you both have been uh, open about the fact that you did hit a crisis point in your marriage. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, um, more about how you got through that? Um, you can talk whatever you want to about the crisis, but how you actually moved through this, given the fact that you, you had this information. I mean, this was known to you. The book was written. So how did that happen?
2: Yeah. Well, and and I think that's a good point that our crisis is like everybody else's crisis, except that our content was unique to us. And but what's important is how do you get out of a crisis. And I think we've arrived at with with 40 years in the chair with couples and our own marriage, that there that there is a way out of the crisis. But there are not many ways out. Uh, There's some fundamental ways out that. Get us there so why don't i would we'll talk about do you want to talk about that or
0: how we got out of the crisis we added a piece we um got a message one day uh in an astrology book for the <laughs> uh your birthday and your beloved's birthday and they give you a message and i had been told that his his astro- astrological sign. And my astrological sign has the least likely to have a good relationship. Mm-hmm. So we got this book and the assigned the sentence to us was, quote, you are about to decimate your relationship due to the unrelenting scrutiny you give each other. Mm-hmm. So, like... I didn't know I was unrelentingly scrutinizing him <laughs> and that that was killing. The, so anyway, I thought, and vice versa, wow, yes. wow. Yeah. And then Harville recognized himself. Yep. So we realized that we both meant well, but what we were doing was coming across um, as scrutiny hmm. and criticism to each other. So we uh, decided we were going to stop being negative. And we made a decision to be zero negative. And I suggested we get a calendar and see if we could make it through a day without being negative, with neither of us experiencing a put down. And that it was hard, very hard to make it through one day. That meant no negative look in your eye, no negative tone of voice, and no put down. That the, and the definition of negativity is if your partner experiences it as negative so that was um it it took us a while to get through the month where we could even have one day with no negativity and then um we uh, you you have to practice and you can ace it because yeah. we have learned to get very close to a zero negative marriage um it's not about no negativity it's about if there's negativity you do a quick repair and yeah. you have a code word for Oh, that felt negative. Can we have a redo hmm. on that conversation, or could you? And could you say it this way, or, or, I'd actually like an apology, yeah. <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so
2: that's <clears throat> the way we actually got out of it. The book that we had written, which you had read, and uh, and by that time, uh, around a million people had read, we were not using. Hmm. <laughs> There's, you know, I'm a cognitive person. That left brain developed on the farm. This was before I got to my emotions uh, with Helen. Um, so consequently, um, oh
0: yeah, that's a, that part too. He would yes. say, "I teach this shit. I don't do it." So and so.
2: Well, you don't so, have to be so candid about, oh, okay.
0: about, okay. about that with Okay. But it started
2: cute. <laughs> yes, okay. I, and, I, and I guess with, with somebody, it looks like okay. like Lee will not blow. Cover. Right. <laughs> I cover.
1: I won't tell anyone.
2: Right, right. <laughs> don't tell anybody about that. But it was it was <clears throat> you know academics and I'm an academic fundamentally, um, trained to be one um, and love it. Um, don't necessarily see what they know to be applicable to them. You know, like you can teach kindness without being kind. And if you don't aren't integrated, like I wasn't integrated with my affect, with my uh, thinking side, you don't know you're split. And so you think that you are what you're thinking, but you are actually not behaving that way. And everybody around you knows that you who are teaching kindness is sort of unkind. But you're sort of surprised that anybody would think that. So, So I had that split. And Helen had her her split, and our two splits were a part of of that process. So, as Helen was saying, we uh, we so we got out of this by committing unrelentingly to uh, ending negative transactions in our relationship. The book had talked about safety. We knew about that, and negativity was written in the book, but not with the amplification it is in this edition that you now have the new the new edition the 30th year um, but what we took was that and then we discovered as we thought about zero negativity uh, as being something personal for us it dawned on us that it is really the logical outcome of successful therapy That if you get to the end of therapy and you're still critical of each other, you're not through with therapy. Um, You you may have had enough, and you may have decided that that's as far as you want to go, but you're still in a repetitive cycle because negativity is itself negativity that's that's that, that couples get into is itself a part of the unfinished agenda for childhood. You're still not getting the need met because when you get that need met, you're not negative anymore. Your system then, you know, Stephen Porges, this uh, genius on the vagal system, uh, says that we have uh, uh, four uh, receptors basically in the brain. And three of them are programmed to receive danger signals. And only one is programmed to go online when there are no danger signals it doesn't actually perceive safety signals, it just shows up when there's no danger. It's like you go back to normal, and he calls that uh, safety is non-negotiable for human thriving. So if there's a negative transaction, your brain goes into fight or flight mode or shutdown mode, and only when you can predict that there won't be a negative interaction Will the uh, what he would call the dorsal ventral? I mean the vagal ventral um, sh- show up. It will then uh, be activated. But if any negativity occurs, it will collapse, and you'll go into fight flight or dorsal, vag- uh, dorsal vagal, uh, which is the shutdown mode. And there are three ways you do it: get it the hell out of there, kill them, or play dead. Um, so. Zero negativity, therefore, became the centerpiece of, of Imago theory now. That's the indicator that you're finished with therapy. Knowing you'll always, you know, mess with it at some point. And if you do what Helen said is you have a repair process. You and you John Gottman said the sign of a healthy relationship is the quickness of repair. We totally agree with that. And we've we've adopted that. Get it done in the next three to five minutes if you blow it don't sit in it for 2 or 3 days or weeks because then the brain becomes habituated to the disconnect and then it's very hard to reconnect but if you move toward reconnection immediately the brain hasn't gone through its um, it's becomes um a homeostatic again in the disconnected place you never want to go there so you go there before it all settles in. So that means you have to use your prefrontal cortex to say, "We disconnected. Uh, I got a signal from Helen that she felt to put down. I have to go. Be curious about what did I do to do that, and what can I do to repair that. And we get that done in, you know, three to five or ten minutes, and then we're back, back in the saddle. And I think the other thing that that we did to get out of that was we also discovered that you can't just go zero negative. You have to go that to have a great relationship. (laughs) But you have to add one piece. You have to add those behaviors that relax the vagal systems uh, and the uh, autonomic nervous systems, three receptors about danger, and activate the the, uh, ventral vagal. And that is give each other regularly basis affirmation statements. We Helen and I do three appreciations of each other every night before we go to bed. And what I'm amazed about is we won't go to bed no matter how tired we are or how late it is without going through those through that ritual of giving it. It's like I hope I can stay awake and think of something but and but what's important about that is not the content of the uh, affirmations it's the behavior of being affirmative with each other. And then you go to bed and you snuggle and go to sleep. Whereas if you, if you shared your frustrations for the day, you'd go to bed, turn your back on each other, and, um, and, and produce a lot of cortisol and distance. And the next morning, you'd get up and not feel good.
0: So on my end, I've been helped a lot in my under, understanding of my relationship with Harville in reading contemporary brain science, which I started reading um, uh, as it was beginning to get out more for the lay person, in which the brain science, they had some new discoveries in in the 1990s, and that neuroplasticity, that you can really impact your mind by the thoughts you think. the thoughts you choose to think like you have a choice on what thoughts to run through your mind and certain thoughts um, uh, make the brain unhealthy and other thoughts promote neural integration. And basically I learned that um, we have a lower brain, the reptilian brain, that's the fight, flight, or freeze. And it's the part of the brain that protects you and keeps you alive. And it's all about, is someone about to make me feel bad? Is someone about to hurt me? Um, they better not, because if they hurt me, I'm going to hurt them. And it's all, um, if you really, folk, if you live life in the lower brain, it's all about uh, who wins, who loses, and I want to win. And ultimately, really, it's my way or the highway. Like this is how life should be. And if you're in a marriage, that you shouldn't live your life in the lower brain. That's not as productive if you're wanting to um, have a great relationship. If you move from the lower brain to the upper brain, <clears throat> that's the, the part of the brain <clears throat> that can take the same issue and talk about win-wins. How can... So we've got a dilemma that we're facing. How can both of us get what we want. We see it differently, but is there a way that if I do it given a little and you given a level a little, that it'll be fun for us both. And it learns, it's about cooperation, collaboration. Um, and, uh, and it's, a, and it's about not knowing it's about being curious and, and wondering about our partner. Um, in the middle of the upper brain is an area, it's between the two brain hemispheres. It's called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And it's it's where the Dalai Lama people go and uh, reach an um state, like um, um, and and in the, and you stop trying to know everything and you let go and you um and you live in wonder. And you can practice living in wonder. Actually, the sentence stems. Of a mago dialogue are, you know, if your partner says something and you get reactive, well, before telling him what you think, you go, well, let me see if I've got it. Did I hear? And then you mirror. Did I'm, I'm mirroring you back? Did I get it right? And you slow down your brain. You go into the upper brain, and you say, Did I get it? And your partner says yes or no. And then you go, Well, is there more about that? And you begin to put your your brain into the state of wonder and you listen to you don't like what your partner just said or did but why did they do it and maybe if you knew their story you'd see it a little differently and then you move into empathy well I imagine that you're feeling XYZ way so suddenly you're in the upper brain because the dialogue process put you up here and then hopefully your partner listen is willing to listen to you and by then you've calmed your brain down and you can talk more um, gracefully to your partner without a lot of intensity.
1: So the reptilian brain is locked into, um, I know this, it's, it's, it, there's no question about it, I know this. But if you step into curiosity, that opens the capacity. And for me, I, I think that I hear the same from you, that curiosity is kind of the root to empathy. If I'm not being curious about what they're feeling, I'm not going to get to that place.
2: That's right. In fact, uh, Helen had picked up on curiosity around the is there more about that in the dialogue process now several years ago and has uh, written a paper on curiosity and wonder uh, as the end state of human consciousness. If you go to curiosity, we're thinking of curiosity is that that if you can replace judgment and criticism with curiosity on a regular basis, you got it made. Because curiosity will get you into what's really going on with your partner. But judgment uh, shuts you down and you make up what's going on with your partner. And you're always wrong. So all predications are by definition wrong. But curiosity is never wrong because it allows the partner to show up. And so she uses uh, curiosity in two ways. Curiosity as I'm, I'm wondering about you. And then as the partner shows up in their own being, not the fantasy you had ahead of them, they themselves become wondrous. So that wondering leads to wonder. And then you're in that conscious partnership where you are uh, living in the full potential of the relationship. And it actually mirrors the highest level of resonance between a baby and the caretaker in infancy and childhood before the connecting is ruptured by the caretaker's distraction.
1: Okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to try not to put words in your mouth. So I'm going to ask you about this. Um, okay. uh, a lot of times when I'm talking with people, they're like, well, why should I even work on this? I mean, why not just, this relationship is, is done. Why not just walk away? You two chose to uh, work through and, and get to the end you said you weren't living what you had written, but I wonder if your awareness that um, you needed to work it out, otherwise you'll just repeat it down the road was part of what uh, kept you through the tough points when you, maybe you didn't feel like really connecting with each other. You, you just didn't want to be in pain anymore, whether that helped give you the energy, because one of the things I, I, I want to be clear about with people is why they might want to work through the tough stuff. Would that be a fair estimation?
0: Uh, yeah, um, and one thing uh, a person might know is, you'll go ahead and leave. You know, if you want to leave, fine. Um, but you're probably going to pick somebody else mm-hmm. and end up feeling the same way. And you yeah. might, and and you won't have learned what you might learn if you stay with that person, because we believe a can create a transformation for everybody if they do the process. Yeah. But go ahead and leave; it's okay. It's your life. They don't need. You know, they don't need to do it. But they are very likely to re-experience. But there is a there
2: is a consequence of not doing it, which is that repetition <laughs> phenomenon. You see, the brain will not let go the unmet childhood need. It simply won't let that go. And I think you could say that every divorce. Uh, is a failure for need satisfaction around the unmet child the core unmet childhood need every divorce is that which means the brains going to go look for somebody else and repeat the same cycle so that in fact uh, people who've been who go into the third marriage that we've worked with feel the third marriage is even (coughs) worse than the first marriage, because now they're weary from two failed marriages and the third one, and that often third marriages end very quickly because they just don't have the energy to do it again uh, because they don't have any data about what to do. Because it's be so simple to be able to say to the whole world, there are only three things you have to do to have a great marriage. One is learn how to talk without criticizing and listen without judging so that you can connect beyond your difference. And we call that dialogue. Mirror, validate, and be empathic. And remove negativity. And add affirmations. And you can't help but have a great marriage, because you will have created safety. And when you're safe, you'll be vulnerable. And you'll feel alive and connected to each other. And nobody on the planet could make you leave each other because you're now in in being. You're now in what we are. We are creatures of joy. And when you create and sustain that in a relationship, you know that this is now the epitome, the ultimate. The This is what human beings were made to be. And when you're there, you don't want to leave it. Then you won't leave it. Uh, where would you go? <laughs> it's... <laughs> We we have a phrase of saying, when you feel connected, you have no other desires. And when you're disconnected, all your desires are in full flow.
1: You know, so many times when I've talked with people about the Imago uh, theory, I, one of the things I notice uh, is that it's kind of that bridge point when they suddenly are aware, um, and I start pointing out, you know, where did this kind of come from? Um that a big piece of their uh, change was because they only had that piece of the theory. I didn't have to move past that to get them to re-engage because they suddenly were aware that it wasn't the other person, that there was something within them that they were responding to. And so we've already raised that as as an awareness for, uh, for this process. And so I'm wondering what, now that people would have an idea that that's going on within them, do you have maybe a starting point? Uh, you went through that very quickly. Uh, but uh, so the mirror, validate, be empathic, and then adding affirmation and reducing ne- negativity. Those are, those are long topics of themselves. But what would be a starting point for a couple or an individual uh, to begin coming back into the relationship in a conscious way?
2: Well, I think that what we do in imago therapy is <clears throat> all of our sessions are dialogical. Um so that if a uh, couples are not in therapy, then we would encourage them to find the book or find some way to know what a dialogue looks like and, 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 and at least to understand that dialogue means one person talks and the other person listens, and then you take turns. Uh, and if you know a little bit more, you know that you you mirror back, what the other person is saying, and that's mutual. And that then you say, you, you make sense. Uh, I can see what it's like to be you. And that's the basis for empathy. And then you can say, and I can imagine given that you must feel. So engagement, you have to have a structure for engagement to occur. And that's what dialogue does. It gives you a structured conversation. We, we, uh, 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 this evolved out of the experience of when couples are talking about their issues, if they're not regulated in how they talk about it, they will hurt each other while they're talking about their issues. And therefore the therapy office will become another wounding ground. So we got to the point where we will not allow people to talk to each other in a way that uh, in a critical way, just will not allow that to happen. My office is a sanctuary. Here we talk about what's possible for this relationship and 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 what we discovered, which is a uh, a paradox, and this is uh, something that that Helen inadvertently uh, introduced into our lives and into the clinic in nineteen seventy seven uh, we, I, I give Helen credit for creating dialogue in 1977 when we were in one of our big, we, we got into knockdown drag out battles in the first year of our courtship. So, so, one, so one day. We're in but that, then his voice was
0: so cool. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I would be so mad and, and he'd call and I'd just.
2: Just, just melt. Yes. So in her living room one day, she said, let's stop. Which kind of, you know, that'll stop you. One of us talk and the other one listen, mm. and the other one talk and the other one listen. And it regulated us. Uh, just that clear instruction, no intentionality here. It was just Helen's um, intuitive brilliance showed up. And I was so touched by how that regulated us that I then deliberately went to. The clinic, where I was seeing couples, and began to put them in a talk/listen modality, because at that time dialogue had not been introduced into the culture by anybody except a couple of books in the nineteen forties that were written about uh, by uh, business people, and I think yankovich somebody named yankovich wrote something called the the Power of Dialogue, but it was about business models and where you could do it. So. Um, it took a long time to evolve to the point that dialogue is now with the three steps and the substeps in between and all the sentence stems. It took years to refine all that, but Helen and I practicing it, and uh, but apparently not enough for us to not <laughs> run, run, run into trouble. In about the what the seventeenth year of our marriage, we hit this this wall. Uh, but nevertheless. The way for people to, um, to to get together is to know they have to they have to engage each other in a way that will keep keep them will make them safe. Safety is non negotiable for thriving, and if you're not safe, it's not going to work. You'll live together in conflict or a parallel you'll do transactions rather than relational interactions and life will be, you know, flat and dull or if it's intense, it'll be negative. You have to be safe. And what we found is that the structured conversation where the sentence stems are precise and we regulate that, you have to use this sentence stem. Can't make up stuff while you're talking. You have to use this. It would be like teaching a tennis player, tennis student, You can just swing the the racket any way you want to as long as it's toward the court in the net. They will never hit the ball over the net. They have to be precise. So the sentence stem is the training of the muscle in the arm, uh, the analogy for the tennis player. The sentence stems focus the prefrontal cortex on the interaction, regulates the amygdala, so that the conversation can take place without criticism now i'm feeling safe in this conversation i can now drop my defenses and open up to you and if i now will also commit to zero negativity then you know that i'm safe for you and i know you're safe for me and if i plow the garden and fill it with nutrients called the affirmation process which are appreciations acknowledging caring behaviors um, doing fun experiences, do surprises, anything that says you are a valuable, you are a valuable person to me, and independent of me, then uh, you are in a safe environment. But you have to start with a structured talk, and for most people, that requires a facilitator. But some people we have met have looked at the back of getting the love you want saw the dialogue process and said, we'll practice this on our own. And I can't tell you how many people across the world that we have met who said, thank you for saving our marriage. And I never saw them. Helen never saw them. They read the book and they practiced it on their own. I think some couples can do that. But couples who are deeply wounded and so reactive probably need a referee. Uh, to help them through the process.
1: So let's, since we're at the kind of the tail end, I, I want to make sure people know a next step. If, if this has been something that has really connected, what would be their next step in, in learning more? Obviously the book, Getting the Love You Want, which um, I can't recommend highly enough, but what would be the next step to find more uh, with you and your organization? To the website.
0: Um, I think uh, every couple uh, should ex- should go to a Amago workshop once a year, mm-hmm. even if they 've got a good marriage it's a spa for your relationship and um the um, workshops are every weekend by different faculty people all around the world so on the website, it will say what the um what the schedule is just so many different places every weekend it's workshops are held in about how many.
2: Probably about 15 workshops Maybe around the 15
0: world. around different places. So um, now some people might go, yeah, I'm ready for a spa. Well, others are going, well, listen, we're divorcing. We, you know, if I go to a work, you know, and, and then how, uh, okay, I want to do it, but my partner doesn't want to go. Like he'll, the, my partner will never go. Uh, we have a, a gentleman that we know in our life, and he says the wife's never going to go. And often... Women go, look, my husband's just not. No, no, we're fighting too much. But, like, if if you're one of those people whose partner they're afraid your partner won't go, um, really, a one thing, two things you can do. One is if a, a birthday's coming up or end of the year holiday or something, you could make that a request. You know, for my birthday this year, can we find some month to go to an Amago workshop? Uh, some weekend or uh, an end of the year holiday or, yeah, that's your gift or a Valentine's and another uh, pointer for that person is to say, honey, I'd really like to go to one of these weekend workshops. I really know I'm doing some things that are frustrating and I want to know what I need to do to change. And I hear they're great. And if, if we could go, um,
2: I could become a better partner for you.
0: And so it, that way they get immersed in it. And the faculty just, they're all great.
2: So the specific place to go is harvelandhelen.com. That gives everybody the schedule of our workshops and our activities. And there's also a link to uh, Imago uh, relationships International.org or iri.org that gives them access to all of the workshop presenters across the world who are doing the same workshop somewhere, probably near them. And those are the uh, best places to go and find a, a resource. And I think those uh, those um, websites are also in the back of the book, uh, in the back of getting. Uh, and, and since getting is updated, uh, those would be current.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. And just very, very quickly, even if you say, well, we're getting divorced. If you've got kids, you're still going to be interacting. And if you're still interacting, you still have these patterns that are unresolved. So there is a place to even work on it, even at that point.
2: You can actually say that. Let's go and figure out how to have a good divorce, if there is such a thing.
0: Right. We talk about the goodbye process. The goodbye process. And often people fall in love again during the road (laughs) so <laughs> they, they say goodbye to the dream that died to the and old they start talking one. about it and they thought well wait and, let's and try again
2: and open to a new dream Marvel,
1: helen thank you so much
2: thank you lee it's a pleasure to see you and have this interaction with you it was yeah. a
1: pleasure on my end thank you
2: thank you very much
0: good luck to everybody bye-bye
2: bye-bye
0: Been listening to Save the Marriage Podcast. For more information and help, please visit us at SaveTheMarriage.com.